Cooey, darling. I'm Glyn Fussell and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. I'm beyond delighted to introduce you to some people who embody what it means to be absolute champions. These are individuals who have inspired, stood up for change and shine bright. From superstar highs to the awkward teenage years, come with me on a journey of discovery to find out what makes these people my heroes and I guarantee they will be yours too. Today's hero first stepped into the public eye as front man of one of my all-time favourite indie bands, Block Party. It's only really in speaking to fans that you find out where they've taken your music and how important it is for them. This man is an actual bloody legend, but his skills go beyond making music for the masses and through his art he has given people something much deeper and way more profound. Through his artistry he constantly changes the tired narratives of relationships, race and sexuality. In his podcast debut, darling, it is Kelly Okereke. Across your table, it's the wonderful Kelly Okereke. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, I want to talk about growing up different. Okay. It's something I can relate to, but I think it's something you can definitely relate to. Hmm. Whether you're the arty one, the gay one, or all of the above, how did you navigate your uniqueness growing up? You know, I, I guess first and foremost, the thing that I realised kind of very early on being, you know, being gay was that it wasn't something that I had a problem with. Um, you know, I never really had a sense of shame about being gay. I knew that in the house that I grew up in, it was something that was frowned upon, but I internally never felt that I was doing anything wrong. And I think that was something that really stood me in good stead. I think growing up in London, because ultimately I had to kind of forge a life for myself outside of the home that I kind of grew up in. And, you know, I know that might have been quite intimidating for lots of young people, but I, I never had that. It was always it was always exciting. I always felt like I was on the right path. Yeah. I wasn't worried. I wasn't beating myself up about having sex with, with, with men. I mean, also, though, there was a lot of other stuff. Your upbringing, yeah. when you were raised Catholic as yeah. well. Like you said, it does force you sometimes to go inwards. Yeah. Did that feed your kind of creativity and imagination? Because you're kind of forced to live inside your own universe, aren't you, for a long time? I mean, I think definitely, yeah. It's, um, you know, I was social at school. I had friends. I was kind of well-liked. I wasn't, like, super popular, but I wasn't having my head smashed into lockers. Um, so, I, you know, I had a group of friends, but I did also spend a lot of time by myself. And, yeah, I, I did cultivate, I guess, an internal world. I was really into comics um, and reading and... You know, but but then lots of my straight friends were at the time as well. I, I became quite comfortable with the idea of separating myself off growing up, knowing that I was, you know, there were things that I couldn't share when I was at home. But, you know, I had an outlet living in London, being only like a night bus away from central London, I had an outlet to explore. So there was an element of a double life maybe growing up. And I feel London's played such a big part in your career, I in your so music, in yeah. who you are as a human being. Yeah. What would you be without London? Because, I mean, I grew up in Bristol, which is a city, but I didn't feel that way. I didn't feel like I could escape anywhere. So I was completely isolated in my own brain. Yeah. And it was a crazy brain. <laughs> Still is. But how did that alter ego exist? I think it's partially because I'm a Libra. Um, and mm. I think that... You know, I've always been kind of balancing two different viewpoints or two different extremes. It seems I'm only really happy these days if if I can experience both things at the same time. Um, what do you mean by that? 
I guess there's an element of kind of indecision about my life. I'm, I'm only really happy if if I can experience both opposing things at the same time. That's interesting. I'm a Gemini. Really? So ah, I kind of have a similar yeah. vibe. Yes. I actually remember before I met you, and I think I saw you the way that a lot of people... I was a fan of Block Party for a long time, and I saw a very serious musician. Yeah. And then I met you and realised that you were like the ultimate Mariah fan. <laughs> <laughs> and that there was this real, almost polarised uh, sides of you. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I think a lot of people... Yeah, I think those first few years were quite hard because I was in the British press. I was being painted as being very serious, and 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 I see why now. Looking back, at it, I, I felt I had to be quite guarded about who I was mm. at the start of our career because the people around me were kind of telling me maybe it would be better to not be so honest about yourself um, at this point. And you know, and, and we were young. You know, I was I was a twenty year old having to come out on the world stage. You know, I didn't really have so many people that I could ask for advice about this. But funnily enough, two people reached out to me, Michael Stipe oh, wow. and Skin. And they both offered lots of advice. And it was a bit of a strange journey at that time. And I'm glad that I've gone through it. I think musically at that point in time, Block Party really stood out. It's mm. different from the crowd. What were those influences? I think the thing about growing up in London, I think the thing that we represented kind of as a band was we weren't really afraid of taking kind of influences from anywhere you know I guess in in the in the 80s in this country kind of music was so tribal you know you're a Mm. you're a rocker you're a mod you're a punk you know you weren't all of the above but I think somewhere in the 90s it felt like that kind of snobbery kind of disappeared and no, I remember going to clubs like Trash in Soho. Um, you know, in, in the same hour, you would hear Joy Division and you would hear Destiny's Child yeah. and you would hear Madonna. And that approach of just being into things that were, you know, being good and, and then not, not being a distinction, that was something that we all took upon us. And, you know, we always used to go to the club, all four of us. So it was, it, yeah, it was instrumental at the start of, of our career in... I guess, discerning a musical identity. I feel like the one thing that always really resonates with me is your social commentary. Yeah. You know, more than I like that music, when you go, I understand that path, I understand their tastes, or I understand the nuances. I feel like that's something you've done really well with Block Party. How important is that for you to make social commentary and have a voice within your music and for your artistry? It's important, but it's not a contrived thing. It's just, you know, I'm a black queer man living in the UK, you know, so I see lots of things that make me angry and and make me upset and make me and feel that I have to say something. And luckily I have a voice that people will listen to, or at least I have a platform that I can articulate my concerns and anxieties and I just feel that if I didn't do that I'd be wasting this opportunity that I have to to, you know to reach people but also to heal myself to get these anxieties out out of myself so it's not a contrived thing it's just if you engaged and if you look at the world there will be things that that you find frustrating You've mentioned school, and um, there's one thing whenever I'm sprinting, mincing down the strand, <laughs> and I walk past King's College, I always go, oh, look, there's Virginia Woolf, Florence Nightingale. <laughs> oh my 
forgot it's Kelly. And I always squeal in a giddy fashion. Don't. You went to King's College. You're a very smart human. What made you step into a world like King's College? I went to university really so I could stay in London but still pursue the band and thankfully I did because a year into the course we got signed and then everything kind of changed so I never actually finished my degree so I always feel it's slightly rum that I'm I'm, I'm on the thing on the wall because right next to Michael Morpurgo yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I didn't get a chance to finish but the great thing about higher education is you can re-approach it any time in your life and I, and I do think I would like to go back to school because, you know, not now, but it would be nice to just be immersed in a learning environment also mm. and just, you know, have nothing to do but read books because I used to love that. I used to love it so much. I used to have to read so much and now it's like a struggle. I want to talk to you about a moment that I can still remember clear as day. I'm sure you can. And it was that Attitude front cover. Yes. For me, growing up, Attitude always felt, I will be honest, yeah. like a very gay magazine. And yeah. by that, I mean yeah. singlets, conveyor belt, sure. people look the same. And sure. then all of a sudden you're on the front cover of a yeah. band I really admire and really yeah. love. Yeah. I felt that that was a really powerful moment in representation. Did it feel like that to you at the time? And do you understand the impact of it? Yeah, I mean, I do understand the impact. I think the only other cover of Attitude of a black person on it had been... One of the guys from Big Brother. Which is insane. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because, I mean, I do understand the significance, but there was so much going on around that time as well with with the records that I was releasing and just being caught in that kind of whirlwind that I can't really remember too much about that time. Um, Because, you know, I'm, I'm on the other side. It's only really in speaking to fans that you find out where they've taken your music and how important it is for them. And I've only just joined social media now just so I could feel connected during lockdown so I could make music and share it with people. But I tend to personally prefer a bit of distance between the, in the whole process of like artist and audience like I don't really want to know what people are thinking you know when I produce music it's I know this is going to sound really selfish but it's for me it's always like making music is like it's like an exorcism really you just have to get this idea or these feelings or these kind of songs out and once they're out they're done and then it's not really yours anymore it's like it will go around the world and and it will you know, it will hopefully do that for other people. Mm. But as soon as it's done, I kind of don't really want to know. How about those closest around you at that time? I knew at the time that I wanted to be more direct about who I was. I think it really did a number on me in the f- when we were promoting our first record, feeling that like there was always some kind of axe to grind with any journalist that I ever sat down with, that they always, you know, that they were, I was always trying to be outed. So I felt like I had to, grabbed the ball by the horns with the second record and that was part of that process I think and there were a lot of references in the second record Joiner's Arms was yeah. referenced what was the significance for you of the Joiner's Arms I think it was significant because it was I guess it was the only real local gay space that I went to and you got to meet all the other kind of queer people in your area so it was a good time. It was a fun time. Lots of crazy, crazy nights with crazy, crazy people. Um, not so long ago, you stepped away from the band for a moment, a hot minute, and you wrote a musical. Yeah. 
And it honestly, it blew me away. It was so incredible because the songs were so exciting. And again, didn't feel like an obvious route for lead singer of <laughs> cool indie art house band. Yeah. So what made you want to do that? Um... I think it was a combination of things. You know, I've been speaking to a friend of mine, Matt, the the writer. I've known him since I lived in East London, like over like 10 years. So we've known each other for a very long time and we've always talked about doing a project together. And initially we spoke about making a graphic novel um, that I would write music for and he would write the story. And we were, we, we were kind of getting it developed and then somehow the idea got to the Lyric Theatre and they were interested in us turning it into a musical. So that was kind of how it started. But it was an interesting process for me because traditionally musicals aren't really the sort of realm that I know about or care about. But through doing this process and just watching everything, I was able to get a kind of a handle like on it. I mean, the one thing I guess you did know about was talking about a queer love story and that was the real beauty of yeah, it for yeah, me for me too there's a real lack of that why are we not getting these queer love stories I, feel, I mean i don't know i feel it's funny because in this house all we watch is queer drama queer television so so that's what what we're immersed in as, as, a, as a gay family but but i realized outside of this house it's probably it's probably not that the case like every night we're watching something that is lbt lbtq yeah yeah get those letters <laughs> in there honey get those letters in there yeah <laughs> so so i feel like in, in this house it's those are the only stories that we have but i realize that's not the case for everyone but i don't know i'm i feel like if you look which has always been the case if you look i'm you, you will find so i mean you just mentioned your family then and yeah obviously you've done something that i long to do and you've become a, a parent so I mean that's I think that's difficult for anyone becoming a parent but then becoming a parent yeah in a queer family where you're once again ripping up the rule book and and re-establishing how that looks it must have been the hardest thing to do right I think it's kind of like what I said at the start you know I've never felt that being queer is something that should stop me doing what I want to do and that and that's a, a I guess a mantra that I've had from the start so so yeah I mean it wasn't the easiest process it was years of you know of planning and meetings and having to fly to the states because we went down the kind of surrogacy routes so it was a drawn-out process um, of going to the states kind of making embryos and all that sort of thing but it was something that I guess galvanized us and so, so, so that side wasn't hard but I guess yeah there are challenges you know I'm not gonna lie that you know there are challenges being like a same-sex kind of family but we're very lucky where we are here in Clapham that we have a network of other kind of queer families that are going through a similar thing like our daughter's nursery there was like three other gay families wow. in, in a class that's incredible so, yeah so we we know that it won't be easy but we know that it, that we have you know that it's not going to be as hard maybe as we thought I think there's something when you're queer that equips you for the other right and yeah. it, it equips you to look at things because you're forced to yeah, differently for sure so 
you know that maybe having a, a new modern family mm. is going to be different, right? Yeah. It's going to be hard, but also you're ready to deal with that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like every juncture of my life, I've had to confound other people's expectations of what they think I am. So this isn't any different, really. <laughs> I know so many people that, you know, desperately want to have children. Yeah. Queer or yeah. other. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say to them? Yeah, I guess, you know, ultimately it's about the children and making sure that you're present and able to give to them, you know, to, to give them love. And I think that's a challenge, not just for queer parents, but for, you know, I'm having to learn how to become a lot more patient. Um, and I, I am learning, you know, I feel it's going to sound very odd, but this last year, because Eden, our two-year-old was born six months before the pandemic started. So this last year, I've been at home, I haven't been travelling, I haven't been working, but I've been at home with Eden every day and it's been a wonderful feeling. Yeah. You know, with Savannah, I missed, because we were still touring, I missed quite a few of her developmental stages. Mm. Um, but with Eden, I've been here for everything. I've seen him take his first steps, I've seen him start to speak. It's uh, Although COVID has been a rubbish situation for lots of people, it's given me a sense a family that I didn't have before. So I'm so I'm kind of happy in this space, if I'm honest. Amazing. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get it out. Um, so we always end the podcast with yeah. a few things that we like to ask our guests just to find out a little bit more about them. So I'd love to know a book that's informed your life. Okay, I thought about this quite a lot um, today and it's super hard because obviously with books and whatnot you know whilst you're reading them they all take you kind of somewhere but if I think back to the first time that I read Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin that was probably I would have been in my late teens and it was the first time that I'd really seen a gay relationship a romantic relationship kind of explored um just seeing it normalised really was something that had a tremendous effect on me and you know yeah I guess it's kind of really made me appreciate kind of queer art. How about a trip that changed your life? Sure um, okay I mean with my job well I was very lucky that I got to travel the world mm. like all the time so yeah I had to when thinking about this question I, f I had to really think back to before we got signed and started traveling and whatnot. And I guess I, the first time that I ever traveled outside of the UK was with my flatmate at the time, a girl called Liz, um, who was Austrian. And she had lots of friends in Berlin and basically spent a summer in Berlin with her. Wow, yes. And that kind of really blew my mind, really, as to how... People can live, and uh, you know, I remember not knowing anything about Germany for some reason, thinking it was like going to be really cold. Uh, but when we got there, it was the height of the summer, and it was hotter than it was in London. And we went to the Tear Garden um, immediately, and everyone was just like sunbathing naked. You were in a fur coat. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that kind of immediately, I, I knew that this was going to be an interesting time. And but just speaking to her friends and seeing how. German Berliners lived and you know the effect of the kind of nightlife as part of culture there was mm. something that I yeah it's you know it's still it's still my favorite place in the world to go to to visit do you find when you travel with a band it's a different kind of travel it's a different kind of experience the moments may be grand they may be 
extravagant yeah but you're not experiencing culture on that level yeah i mean for, for sure um i guess now because we've been doing it for so long and now when we go to these cities we've been here countless times before mm. so there's less of an impetus to explore but but at the same time, it's like I know where my favourite district in New York is. You know, I know where my favourite part of Paris is. You know, I because I've been here so much, yeah. I have a sense of, you know, I have a where sense... Where your of, people are. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess with, with the band, it's kind of in, in and out. But, you know, I'm lucky that I get to, you know, that we have days off in cities. So it's, you know, and we have friends now all over the world. So it's, yeah. Has there ever been a human that's made you a who human you are? Made me, Yeah, I mean, I think quite literally the human that made me who I am is my mum. Um, I feel like we're so similar in so many ways. She's super, super headstrong to the point of stubborn, She's in her seventies, but and she's got like a like a dodgy leg, but she's still so active and so alive and so connected, and, and always has a, an idea or a scheme or a plan. She's always she's going to be until the day that she's no longer here. She will be pulling a stunt. She'll be having you know, she'll she'll be getting up to all sorts, and you know. And I think you know there are lots of things with, that we disagree on, and and we can bump heads and it's been interesting having kids and seeing how our relationship yeah, is, has, circle moment. Has, has changed but yeah my mum is probably the person I'm most like on this planet so wow how about a love that's taught you the biggest lesson I mean I don't think I can put any of my exes on blast <laughs> uh, uh, but but I will say I think the biggest lesson that I've learned really and I, I've already mentioned it is I guess the love for, for my children I think mm. when they were born, you know, I guess when Savannah was born, I didn't know that you could feel that way about another human being and seeing just, you know, as I said, every day that I've spent with Eden in this past year, it's, you know, it's making me think that I don't know that I can go on the road again, you know, I, wow. I don't, because I just don't want to be away. I feel like we brought these children into the, into the world and it's, you know, they didn't ask to be here. So I have to make sure that I'm completely present for them in their lives. And I don't know that I, you can do that if you're on the road or all, all the time. So, so yeah, that's the biggest lesson I've learned through love, I guess, really. Wow. Final one. Mm. And it's just one song, one a song. track that soundtracks your life. Okay, this is a hard question for me because as a musician, there's lots of music, you know, that I have an emotional connections to. But probably the first time I really had music move me to like a spiritual place was, was when I heard the fluke remix of Big Time Sensuality um, by Bjork. I would have been in secondary school. I would have been probably about 13 or something. And it was like an explosion. Just you can hear the passion and the drama and the excitement in her voice and in the arrangement and and I heard it again like in a club probably about four years ago and it just took me back to a you know I was slightly worse for wear um, but it took me back to a very just a very innocent place and just just such great lyrics it takes courage to enjoy it yeah that's probably the song that I've the one of the first songs I ever really fell in love with. Well, I was so shocked then because that's also mine. Is it, are you joking? That whole album. Are you joking? It was the first time I knew that I was different, other. Before yeah. I knew I was queer or gay, yeah. that whole album just made me go, oh, this is the life that I'm going to lead. 
I didn't I didn't know that at the time. Um, I, I had a friend, Michael, in the year above, who who like gave me a debut. Um, it, it lent it to me. Um, you know, I'd never heard anything like it at all. But it's she's the artist that I you know I own all of her recordings, mm. and, I, and there are no artists anymore that I own all, all of their records. So she she means so much to me and her, her presence still means so much to me so I yeah that, that record is probably the start of me realising how beautiful music can be well I hope taking your podcast virginity was not too painful and it, it wasn't I, I'm, I'm up for more <laughs> <laughs> it's been joyful thank you so thank much thank you very much thank you if you're enjoying this podcast please like share and of course subscribe